human being, you have the permission to talk about climate change because it affects us all. The best thing to do is just to talk about it from your point of view. You don't have to talk about it like Professor Tim Flannery. You don't have to talk about it like Al Gore. You don't have to talk about it like uh, a politician or anybody else. You can start with your own voice and your own understanding and your own knowledge and approach to the issue and that that is valid, that is welcome and that is important. You're listening to Hope Act Thrive by Be The Future. Or we like to call it HATS for short. And you, my dear listeners, are our mad hatters. HAT is an inspirational podcast for guardians of the next generation. Whether you're a planet-conscious parent, groovy grandparent, fab foster carer, terrific teacher, awesome auntie, or any other member of the extended family. We're having conversations with leading doers, thinkers, and shakers in climate action that will inspire you to stay optimistic, feel part of an ever-growing movement, and take actions that fit into your busy lives. Just like you, we want to create a better, greener, fairer future for the kids in our life. So, who are we? I'm Sally Giblin, an environmentalist, writer, and parent, and co-host of this podcast. I'm the one providing the Aussie accent. And I'm Helen Hill, and I'm an educator, author, and designer. The one with a very exotic British Bolton accent. Hello and welcome to the HOPAC Thrive podcast. Today's episode is with Dr. Rebecca Huntley, one of Australia's most experienced social researchers and former director of the Mind and Mood Report, the longest running measure of the nation's attitudes and trends. She holds degrees in law and film studies and a PhD in gender studies and is mum to three young children. She is a member of Al Gore's Climate Reality Corps and is advisory group chair of Australian Parents for Climate Action. Rebecca carries out social research for NGOs such as the Wilderness Society and WWF and is the author of numerous books, including How to Talk About Climate Change in a Way that Makes a Difference. This episode is supported by Australian Parents for Climate Action, which increases the political and corporate will for climate action by engaging and empowering millions of parents and carers across Australia to advocate for climate action in their communities, in the media, and to politicians and businesses. In this conversation, we'll talk about the need to get emotional about climate change, social trends in relation to climate change, and how we can bring about a change of heart in others. So let's get into the conversation. Welcome to the podcast, Rebecca. Thanks so much for having me. Very happy to have you here, especially as Helen and I are also both climate reality leaders, plus um, I'm also involved in Australian Parents for Climate Action. So wonderful to get to, to chat to you today. Yeah, lots of overlaps. Exactly, exactly. But look, something we'd love to start with is if you could just talk us through your climate moment. You know, when did your heart change about the climate crisis? In my book, I start with the moment of recognition that the anxiety and urgency of the school strike for climate, all the young teenage boys and girls who were not that much older than my eldest of my three children, was a very kind of impassioned plea for the kind of parent generation to get involved. So really watching that strike was a real transition moment for me, kind of turning point. So looking back on 
my experience, but also in the research I do where you you meet people who kind of went from concerned to alarmed about climate change seemingly in a moment with a particular kind of trigger. It looks like that's a, a rapid shift, but they were probably on the pathway to getting there. It's just certain kinds of things can move it along and it's different for different people. So I've done research where people have watched something like the Black Summer Fires or the floods. They wouldn't have had to actually experience it. They just might have watched it. And that was the thing that transformed them. Or often people have a really transformative moment in nature or they hear somebody speak or, you know, something happens and it can be something visual or written. It can be a physical experience. And so, so many people are kind of on the pathway and something moves them. I mean, I I kind of look back before that moment of the kids' climate strike I'd been intellectually interested in climate change and about how we we make it relevant and relatable to people. And I'd actually done a, a little radio documentary and some writing for the ABC on how climate change was affecting Australian wine regions all over the country. And I'd also done this piece on how climate change was going to alter spaghetti bolognese which is a very kind of you know iconic you know typical dish most Australians make it eat it and taking some of the elements of of that dish and thinking well what will climate change do to that and so I was really interested and I actually spent years in my research listening to people talk about climate change and 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 the environment it was kind of quite intellectual though for me it always then fascinates me hearing other people's stories and watching in the social research what moves people, what persuades them, and not and not necessarily persuades them about the veracity of the science. Because remember, the vast majority of the population know that climate change is happening. And then within that group, a big chunk know that we're causing it, if not the main cause, a cause. Very, very few people who think climate change is happening think it's completely natural cycle. There is a you know, reasonable amount who think it might be natural in us. So it's actually not about whether believe, people believe the science. It's about whether they see climate change as something that affects them today and the things that matter to them. And that connection that they make is enough for them to say, okay, well, what am I actually going to do? How might I live differently? How might I behave differently? How might I ask different questions? And that's a that's a very different. It's a very different shift than just thinking, "Oh, I believe the science, and it's a thing, and the government should do something about it." Yeah, that really resonates, and I love this idea of being a longer path, and the fact that it could be, you know, not just a, a typical learning experience, but something emotional or visual that could le- really push you along that path further. And I think that was the case for me when I saw the effect of the climate after tsunami and in Thailand and just the effect that everything had had on the reefs there and and the rubbish and, you know, it was such a beautiful environment and it was just covered in our waste, our human waste. So that was a real visual trigger for me. And your book is a powerful guide on how to talk to people about climate change in a way that makes a difference. So at the heart of it is this idea that we're going to, well, we're not going to change the hearts of many about climate change through science of technology and that's something you just touched on there we need to rethink how we communicate about climate change and how we inspire people to act so can you talk us through this a little bit oh yeah well it's hard we're lucky in that there is this wonderful developing body of of 
thinking, research, writing, some of it within academia and some of it outside within advocacy about taking the basic principles of communicating about anything and applying it to climate change. Because there are, you know, many of the kind of fundamental rules of communicating apply to talking about climate change. But there is just something very difficult about climate change that that sets it apart, I've got to say, from talking to people about healthcare or talking to people about religion. Like it, it is actually different. And I think it's different because it's quite unprecedented that we face an existential threat that is becoming out of our control, right? It's enormous. It's complex. It has the ability to change everybody's lives and really transform them. And of course, the thing when you read the science that is really scary is that you, you know, we may get to a point if we don't address it, where there are a range of feedback loops and tipping points, and there'll be a point where it kind of, you know, there is that kind of, you know, trajectory, which is very alarming, which makes it quite different to things like, for example, nuclear wars and other kinds of things. So it's, and of course, it's, it's become highly politicised, particularly in places like Australia and the United States. I mean, I think it requires some basic understanding of science to accept it, but I'm, I never get very tied up about wanting to know all the ins and outs. But for most people who, for whom understanding science or understanding maths or just basic, all of those kinds of things is not great, it's got that barrier around, it's got a barrier around being politicised, being scientific and being, you know, basically overwhelming, <laughs> like a very overwhelming, terrifying and global. So you've got to add all the basic techniques and rules of communicating into something that is quite specific. So I think in the work that I do with different kinds of organisations, I just this in terms of the language that I use, whether if I'm talking to a big, you know, financial services firm or if I'm talking to a little community group, but I think that the most important thing is understanding where your audience sits and their values and the frame within not just which they see climate change, but within which they see the world. And I think that whatever you might say about climate change, if you're a, a climate communicator who's a natural scientist or a social scientist, kind of doesn't matter. You do really have to be able to read the room. And one of my favourite stories, I don't put it in the book, but um, one of my favourite science communicators is Professor Catherine Hayhoe. She's originally from um, uh, Canada, but she lives in the United States. She's a climate scientist, but she's also a devout Christian. She's married to an uh, evangelical Christian minister. So you can't kind of accuse her of being the standard extreme lefty. So she's she's great. And she talks about going one day to give a talk on the climate science to I think it was Rotary or something like that. And she was kind of sitting, waiting to, to be introduced and to come in. And she saw the values of Rotary kind of put up on the board. And she completely rejigged her speech to use that language and use those frames and to use those very words that were in the kind of guiding principles of this organisation. She just kind of, you know, scribbled it and refashioned it, right, to be able to then talk about this in a way that connects with people. And so understanding your audience, reading the room is a really important beginning bit. I think the second thing, and this is um, important and also difficult because this means that when you are talking, it's never just a one-off conversation, is so much of the climate change conversation, again, particularly in Australia, has been 
characterised by partisan conflict and people yelling at each other and you're stupid, no, you're stupid, <laughs> largely unedifying for most people who, who don't actually want to engage that way. So I think a big part of it is once you understand who you're talking to, what their mindset is, what are the things that they value, is that you have to also just allow them to talk and ask a whole lot of open questions. You know, what's your views about climate change? Where do you get your views? Why do you think that? You know, really opening people up in a way that, um, and that can take time and that can be difficult. Why that's important is that often when people are given the permission to talk about climate change, which is something that it doesn't normally happen in day-to-day -day life, people want to avoid talking about it, you get a bit of an indication of what their barriers and concerns are about it. And you actually don't know what they are. You don't want to assume what they are. They might not want to engage with climate change because they're really worried about what, for example, moving away from coal and gas might mean for the economic situation or their economic situation. They may not particularly have a lot in common with the people that they think really care about these issues, you know. There might be some people who look at the climate strikers where I was inspired to action, they might actually be repelled. So getting people to talk about something which people have not previously felt either educated, knowledgeable or angry enough <laughs> for kind of, you know, I'm comfortable with conflict enough to talk about, I think is the beginning. So just getting people to talk and often you know when I'm really doing this well and you know it is very hard to do and I have made my mistakes talking about climate change when I feel that I do this well is that you can have a conversation where you really understand what's driving people's belief about it and they actually go away from the conversation feeling positive that they weren't shut down or made to feel stupid and that's a really good beginning part. I've definitely made Lots of mistakes too, Rebecca. Can you tell us about some of the best climate conversations you've had? Some of those that have been the most successful? Often the best climate conversations are when you get a sense of why they feel the way they do and then you exchange with them what your climate story is and that can be really powerful. You can say, well, yeah, no, I understand. Like it must seem like the science isn't settled because so many people argue about it, but I know that the science actually is. We just don't hear about that much in the news and everybody can pretty much agree that there's some partisanism in our, you know, and, and distortion in our news media. And you can say, but for me, climate change is really important because blah, blah, blah. And then sometimes that's all that's required, I think, as an initial conversation. I think that in ongoing conversations or if you're actually working with an organisation to get them to understand what their best strategy is, my most important guiding principle is how you balance loss and gain in the conversations you have about climate change. For us to pretend that addressing climate change or living with climate change is going to be really, really easy if all we do is transition to renewable energy, you know, in the next 10 to 15 years, we are essentially lying to people. There is already been a lot of loss. There continues to be loss. Even if we change very, very quickly, there is already, given the heating that we've already had, some loss that's inevitable. The kinds of extreme weather events that we've experienced in the last couple of years are not going to go away even if we move to 100% renewable energy in the next seven years. 
that's coming down the line at us, whether we like it or not. We do have to build a whole lot of social capital, resilience, structures, everything to kind of handle that. So we do have to talk about what we've lost and what may in fact face us, which is going to be challenging because people don't change unless something is at risk. So while beating people over the head with the terrifying statistics of climate change is not effective, we have to balance that with, yes, this has happened, some of this is going to have continue to happen, but we can address a lot of this and make sure that it isn't worse than it, we're on a trajectory for it to be if we do these things. So part of it is about moving relatively quickly once you've addressed the risks of inaction and the loss that we've suffered and the loss that we have to prepare ourselves for with we have the solutions in the face of a lot of the climate science, it's quite easy to despair. But you realise that through collective action, through groups all around the, this country and all around the world doing things, we're just evening the odds every day. And that's really important. And I think that then becomes a kind of active hope in, the, in doing the things that we know we need to do, embracing the solutions, being ambitious about it, we actually generate a kind of active hope. It's best done in groups of people rather than on your own, but that's possible. So kind of in that in that talking about climate, which I do with people in different groups, I kind of, I, I talk about the loss and the gain and I really try and emphasise the gain and the role that people can play within collectives to be able to generate that active hope. And the other thing I do as well, and I try and do that with lots of different organisations, is say, you have permission to talk about this. You might be a group of, you know, nurses or footballers or um, farmers or people working in this company or people doing these things. It kind of doesn't matter really who you are. If you're a human being, you have the permission to talk about climate change because it affects us all. The best thing to do is just to talk about it from your point of view. You don't have to talk about it like... Professor Tim Flannery, you don't have to talk about it like Al Gore. You don't have to talk about it like uh, a politician or anybody else. You can start with your own voice and your own understanding and your own knowledge and approach to the issue and that that is valid, that is welcome and that is important. Absolutely. And I think it's so important, I agree, that we need to have all different people from all parts of the community, all sorts of ethnicities, all sorts of backgrounds, putting their voices out there and really starting communities around climate action because different people are going to resonate with with different identities, I guess. And so it's really important that as many people as possible can find a place in this movement and find where their skills and their passion and, and their joy for this can lie and where they can contribute. Something probably to, to link on from that, I've been talking a lot about active hope, which is something we talk about quite a bit here at Be The Future as well, and definitely agree that hope needs to be something that you're doing, that you're contributing to, and that you're trying to create that better future. Something that, that I feel is that we, we don't necessarily have enough of a conversation out there about what the future could be if we avert the worst of these climate impacts. Yes, there are already impacts baked in. Yes, there are, are things like tipping points and, and, and cycles. And, and stacking of emissions, but 
you know, what could this future really be if we really do take action and trying to help people visualize what we could create, I think is incredibly important. What are your thoughts on this, Rebecca? Yeah, it's a fabulous question. So I think the first thing I say around technological solutions to climate, so we're mainly talking about renewable tech here, is that whether you believe that climate change is driven by humans or not, everybody realises that summers are getting hotter. <laughs> summers are getting hotter. And, um, and, to, and to address the impacts of climate change, regardless of what you think is driving it, you're going to need more electricity. And the only way to do that in a way that doesn't create more pollution, and I use the word pollution a lot rather than emissions, is to go to renewable energy. People get that. So I say that it's really important when we think about a future driven by renewable energy that the solutions to climate are also the tools we'll need to survive climate change. So there's those connections. And a really big part of it is we know that in big cities and regions, the people who are going to be you know, suffer most from climate change, whether it be extreme heat or fires or floods, are going to be people who are generally who are economically vulnerable. So in insecure housing and in insecure work in Indigenous communities, all those kinds of things. So that's the first thing I'd say. We need the solutions to climate change so that we can adequately adapt to the effects of climate change. The second thing I say is the extraordinary capacity of renewable energy. 30 years ago, maybe 20 years ago, if you caught a whole lot of people who were in the early stage of renewable tech and you put them in a time machine and you leapt them forward to this moment, they would be shocked by two things, the Kardashians and what that's about. But the other thing they'd be shocked at is the, just the extraordinary capacity in the development around renewable energy, that we can generate enough renewable energy in Australia to effectively create renewable hydrogen with basically a bit of water vapour as the um, byproduct, and that can do incredible things. So I think that the other thing that climate solutions can do is give us the most extraordinary amount of energy, not just for our own energy needs, but for to be able to manufacture some of the stuff we're doing now, things like steel and nickel, but potentially other stuff that we haven't been able to manufacture, really be able to drive down the energy costs of manufacturing, which suddenly makes Australia a lot more competitive. So a, a big part of what I test in a lot of my work is that action on climate change through investment in renewable energy at, at the right level could bring a revival of Australian manufacturing. So that's pretty exciting without the side effects of pollution. Definitely exciting. Can you tell us a little more about the particular situation of Australia, given we have such a depth of natural resources? When the mining industry, the fossil fuel industry started in Australia many decades ago, Indigenous Australians on the land in which that mining was done did not have anywhere near the respect and recognition of governments. And they fought for decades, generations, to be able to get a fair share of the mining profits on their traditional lands. We're now at the cusp of this energy transition where governments of all kinds are planning these enormous, enormous, enormous renewable energy solutions on Indigenous land all over Australia. My hope 
is investment in renewable energy, given where we stand at the moment, you know, certainly not in the best possible place, but better than it was decades and decades ago, with a recognition that it's Indigenous communities on which the developments are being built, they should have some benefit, profit sharing, job opportunities, it's their land. And so I really hope that this energy transition will bring about greater recognition and empowerment of Indigenous communities and also the benefits of renewable energy in their rural and remote community. There are rural and remote Indigenous communities that are still running on diesel-powered generators and we want to make sure that renewable energy technology is available for them because, of course, we do know that the impacts of climate change are, are affecting a lot of those communities in terms of uh, a whole range of things. So I really hope for that. And finally, the other thing and the thing that gets forgotten so much in the excitement for all this tech is nature-based solutions to climate change. We are still cutting down trees at a shocking rate, are up at the top of the countries in the world that are cutting down their trees. So we need to plant more trees. It's not as as part of these solutions. Seaweed is a magical thing, a lot about making sure we restore and replenish our kelp forests. And of course, there's the very exciting completely Australian invention of asparagopsis seaweed, which can be added to cattle feed and basically eliminate all methane from cattle. That's pretty exciting. So we've got all these nature-based solutions, which will not only be good for Australian business, good for people who will actually service and work with those nature-based solutions, but they're beautiful. Kelp forests are beautiful. <laughs> Trees are beautiful. We can actually create something quite beautiful while addressing climate change. So I hope for the solutions to protect people from the impacts of climate change, to create opportunity and jobs, to empower and support First Nations communities all over the country and make things beautiful. That was fascinating. I'd never heard of anything like that at all. I mean, seaweeds are getting incredibly like used across a number of places now, isn't it? I'd just love to know more about this now. I'm very intrigued. The organisation is called Sea Forest. Definitely look them up. Absolutely. That's, uh, that's fantastic. So as one of our final questions, what would you say to our world leaders, given two minutes in a room with them? I would say two things. I would say, what do you want your obituary to say about you? And what do you want your children and grandchildren to say about you? Would they just say that you occupied the space and did what was easy? Made some achievements but really didn't tackle the difficult issues. What's the legacy that you leave in your professional life but also in your personal life? And as a social researcher, I would say to them, 20 years ago, it was very, very difficult to get the vast majority of the population to focus on this because it seemed you know, very much in the future and it all seemed theoretical and the economics of the solution to climate weren't in play. Now that's not the case. The economics of the solutions are there and the scientists aren't saying 20 or 25 years, they're saying seven years. So think about that in terms of electoral terms. In Australia, that's two terms of the current Labor government. That isn't much. And so I think all of these things have come into focus and there's actually no reason, no ethical, no moral, no economic, no politically expedient reason to delay. And there is certainly no reason to delay. If you have 
even if you think for a moment about what your legacy is going to be, what's going to be in your obituary and what your children and grandchildren will think and say about you. So that's what I would say. I love the pithiness of your initial response, Rebecca. That's, that's fantastic and it, it completely sums it up. So I guess one last question. What would you like to tell people who deeply care about the next generation, you know, whether that might be parents, teachers, carers, family, all those people who just love these children in their lives and want the best for them? I think the thing that I realised is that actually they're the ones leading us. Look at them and honour them in the support you give them to raise their voices. It was young people, 25, 30 years, 35 years younger than me that actually told me that I have a role to play. They are doing extraordinary things around the world, whether it's, you know, suing government for their lack of action on climate change or suing big corporations or organising mass movements or doing extraordinary things online to persuade people. One of the reasons why we saw climate play a role in this election is a whole lot of young people who had been protesting three years ago suddenly got to vote. And when we look at how they vote, they vote with climate as a huge issue. I would say for anybody who is caring for young people or works with them, find ways to support them and amplify their voice and the things that they want to do because they are actually leading the world rather than being led. And we have an obligation and a responsibility to help them continue to do that. Thanks so much for joining us. Your initiation into the Hatter tribe is now complete. We really hope this episode inspired you and that you're coming back for more. If it did, please review, subscribe and share this episode with a curious, climate conscious friend. It makes it possible for us to keep having these conversations for you. And there's lots more where that came from. Check out the show notes for more details on this episode and our fabulous guest. And if you just can't get enough of us and manage to grab another few minutes peace in your day, do come hang out with us on social channels where we share real tips for real parents and help you to turn eco-anxiety and gloom into fun and playful action. And not forgetting you can regularly see us making a fool of ourselves on reels. Together we can hope, act, thrive.